This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. Part of what I wanted to do in the book is show how, over the course of the 20th century, um, there are two interesting things that are happening uh, historically to me. One is that evangelical Christians are growing in their influence, their political and cultural influence. Uh, they are becoming adept at organizing politically. They are becoming adept at using modern forms of media, modern idioms to talk about their faith. Mm. And, uh, at the same time that's happening, and that isn't just a 1980s to the present religious rights story that goes all the way through the 20th century, but especially after the 1940s uh, with people like Billy Graham. Um, at the same time that that's happening, over the course of the 20th century, our criminal justice system is changing. Um, our criminal justice system is expanding, is becoming more punitive. And so part of the puzzle of the book itself is just figuring out what do these two things have to do with one another? What do they have anything to do with one another? Um, are there mutual um, overlapping uh, themes, narratives, and connections politically in terms of influence that we can we can point to? And what I try to show in the book is, is I suppose, two different, try to make two different points here. One is that issues of crime and punishment were important to American evangelicals who were becoming publicly, culturally, politically influential. Hmm. Um, we can see this in, you know, for just to take one example, uh, Billy Graham, you know, this famous evangelist who launches his public career really in the late 1940s uh, and, you know, died only a few years ago. Uh, throughout his early career, he talks a lot about all different kinds of issues. He talks a lot about communism. He talks a lot about sex and just all these things that he thinks are problems for American life that the gospel can solve. But a major thing he talks about is juvenile delinquency and crime hmm. um, and how the gospel addresses this problem of teenage rebellion, of teenagers wanting to join gangs and, and go out and, and, and rob people or what have you, uh, to the point that, you know, he's, he's talking about juvenile delinquency throughout his crusade ministry in the forties and fifties. Um, he is highlighting conversions of mobsters, you know, coming to Christ. And, uh, I, I try to show throughout the book how these kinds of moments of focus on criminals, criminality, um, are so crucial for evangelicals who want to think really theologically in public about issues of sin and redemption. Because where better to go to talk about sin and redemption than a former mobster or a gang member um, who might convert to Christ? Uh, on the other hand, so if that first category is evangelicals being shaped by issues of crime and punishment, on the other hand, the, the sort of second uh, piece that I wanted to draw out in the book is how um, our system of criminal justice uh, 
we might say mass incarceration, especially from the 1970s to the present, um, has religious valences itself. I say this in the book, but one of my goals here was to tell a religious history of mass incarceration, not simply mm -hmm. just a story of evangelicals, but actually to talk about religious actors, ideas in uh, policing in criminal justice policy, in prisons themselves, how incarcerated people practice their faith. And so, you know, one thing I uh, look at, for example, was the, um, the way that from the 1980s on, uh, as prisons have grown or are growing and things like the war on drugs are ramping up, you have on the one hand, some evangelicals who are arguing for tougher laws, more punitive, um, harsher restrictions, uh, and playing into the growth of this um, incarceration system that we have. Um, these are people like the moral majority. Uh, on the other hand, you also have criminal justice reformers, people like Chuck Colson, right. uh, who were very active from the 1980s on in contesting the growth of prisons to a point and saying like, they're different ways we can think about punishment. Uh, the growth of prisons is a bad thing uh, and are doing that in overly, overtly evangelical terms and really laying the foundation for the contemporary conservative criminal justice reform movement, which um, reached, I think it's sort of apex in the Trump administration, actually. Um, mm -hmm. And the Trump administration itself is where I kind of in the book as an example of how these two things really played out at the same time. Like here you have Donald Trump who is dubbing himself the law and order candidate as he's appealing to white evangelicals. At the same time, he's heralding criminal justice reform legislation, like the first step act. Um, and really saying that Democrats are the ones that have failed on incarceration issues. Um, so that attention to how Mass incarceration is a religious story as well as, as something I, I want to do in the book. Now, full disclosure, you happen to be talking to somebody who is both a juvenile delinquent <laughs> by all by all reasonable standards. Mm -hmm. And I also participated for five years in the war on drugs in Colombia, mm. um, uh, and 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 saw the fruitlessness of that supply side interdiction. Uh, oh, slowly, it dawned on me over five years and ten deployments. Um, and I'm also a biblical scholar, and and I have to say, when I've heard you talk about this before, and I've heard others talk about mass incarceration, and when I've just watched old videos of James Dobson or um, or Billy Graham included. Speaking on these things, mm. I I look at scripture and then I hear what they're saying and I can't reconcile the lock them up. These are dangerous people. I mean, we we like look, the biblical authors are completely hip to the issue of dangerous people, right? There's right. lots of wisdom literature about dangerous people. Yeah. Uh, that makes sense to us. Um, but as we were saying before, there is no provision for locking anybody up in the biblical system of justice, at least under mm. Israel, uh, under Israel's empires. Um, so I'm trying to figure out, there has to be some story here, and you're probably the one who knows it, of how, they, how this worked its way into the thinking, which then worked its way into the, the religious movement. Or maybe it didn't start with thinking, maybe it started with 
action and reaction. I don't know. Yeah. It's a really complicated story. And I think on some level, this is not a story unique to evangelicals. Um, that's actually part of the point I make in the book is that mm. as evangelicals are wrestling with this, they're not only wrestling with a profoundly just human question of like, how do you deal with uh, wrongs that have been committed? How do you understand the law, legal violations, and how to address that? Uh, how do you prevent violence or reduce violence? Um, those are just, yeah, as you said, like biblical questions. They are uh, questions that people for a long time throughout the world have wrestled with and come to different answers with um, too. What I try to show in the book, and I start here, not actually with evangelicals. I start in, or at least evangelicals as we understand them. I start in the early 20th century um, with uh, the emergence of the, what I call um, a religious war on crime, um, where Protestants, Catholics, Jews, liberals, and conservatives, all who have very different ideas about what um, we should do about crime, about what crimes we should focus on, about how to diagnose it and treat it, um, they all agree in the early 20th century, and they come to see that crime is a religious issue. And it is a feature of secularism. Um, it's a feature of the godlessness uh, that threatens American life. And um, this is my first chapter of the book where I, I really try to show how that, that worry about crime as secularization and crime as sin becomes embedded in uh, the thinking of all kinds of different religious groups, um, not just conservative Protestants. Now, evangelicals build off of this from the 1940s on as they are seeking to become influential in American public life, as people like Billy Graham, as people like Carl Henry, uh, James Dobson um, are interested in thinking about their faith in public. Dobson's an interesting example too, because he's a psychologist who, uh, you know, is known more for his family values stuff. Uh, but Dobson writes a book in the 1970s called Dare to Discipline. And it's mm. about uh, not only how parents should discipline their children, which is an interesting question on its own, but it has in the background the crisis of the 60s, the crisis of drugs, the crisis of urban unrest, um, is hanging in the background because Dobson sees these things as religious problems um, and uh, religious issues that that Christians should talk about. And so I really think more generally evangelicals are looking for a way to simply just bring their piety, their conversionism, their biblicism mm -hmm. to uh, American public life and crime and punishment provides a ideal medium for this. Um, I also think though that evangelicals are, so there's that sort of just general public influence. Um, evangelicals though, uh, have an interesting way of thinking about that issue in very individualistic terms. Mm -hmm. So when Billy Graham talks about crime in the 1950s, for example, um, he says, you know, there are kids out there, uh, 
you know, there are teenagers out there that are rebelling against authority um, and that are, that have all these problems and things that they're doing. Um, And that's sin. That's wrong that they're doing that. But the solution is for them to know that Jesus loves them and forgives them. And they can come to Christ and Christ will uh, restore them and bring them to new life. And that actually, I think, showcases the uh, it, how this movement among evangelicals is not inherently punitive necessarily. Mm-hmm. But what it does is that it codes the problem of crime um, sociologically, theologically, as a problem of the heart. That it's something that's within your heart. And then it says, Jesus forgives you. Jesus will meet you in that um, moment, which opens the possibility of personal redemption. But it forecloses the possibility that we have anything to say about crime as a social problem. Um, About crime as something that we should address through other measures, educational, economic, um, you know, what have you. And I think it's that moment that really sets the stage for everything that comes after throughout the 20th century. Um, and Billy Graham's not the only person doing this, where uh, when you make um, an issue of crime a issue of sin, and it's an individual kind of sin, um, then it limits your engagement in other ways, it limits evangelicals understanding of how race might function into not only why certain neighborhoods are the way they are, uh, but also what you should do when people don't repent, when people don't come to Jesus. Um, Then it becomes an issue of blame. And uh, evangelicals are very comfortable then with saying, all right, um, you have done the crime, you do the time. And I think that that's where they uncritically adopt the punitive sentiment and policy that is, uh, you know, being introduced by lots of other figures um, throughout the 20th century as well. And evangelicals become very good at uh, making those arguments themselves. So I think that's where it starts. And even though you do the crime, you do the time, it's it's not true. As Chuck Colson Center has taken a lot of time to point out, there are all these extracurriculars uh, associated with uh, with prison sentences that it's not merely you've served your time, now welcome back to society. It's actually right. all these lingering and malingering effects. I wonder if that yeah. conversion story centrality, if that also creates, you know, I'm just purely psychologically speculating at this point, but it... it if it all is all about uh, somebody who was one thing and they become, you know, they were a mobster, but now they're a follower of Jesus. It also creates this kind of like, there's only one way out of crime, which means that criminality is an otherness. It's, it's absolutely yeah. separate and other, which means, you know, white collar crime. Um, my kid smoking weed in the suburbs is not the same as some kid doing off off label prescription use in the inner city um creates all of these walls and barriers for thinking about criminality absolutely the uh the the legal scholar the the late legal scholar um william stunts makes this argument really well in his book uh the collapse of american criminal justice and he talks about how 
we are constantly violating the law all the time. <laughs> like we are like, all just when we, yeah. Like you when just we haven't read enough of it, if you don't know how, yeah. Right. Yeah. And we're speeding. Like he uses the example of like speeding, you know, just how that is something we're doing all the time. And sometimes we get caught. Sometimes we don't. Um, but uh, how the ambiguity and the universality of our complex relationship to the law is just, is just, you know, Americans, opens up the possibility of different cultural frames for how we we label crime and like what is actually the worst kind of crime mm-hmm. and where the police should go. Um, you know, the example I think here that Stunts doesn't use this, but I think it's so true of like, you know, drug use on college campuses uh, is, I, I have not looked at studies, but I'm guessing it's high on a lot of college campuses. Uh, and yet the police aren't like busting down doors uh, at the dorm room constantly, right? Uh, but they might go to areas of the city that they deem as dangerous or um, havens for drugs and and do that kind of proactive police work uh, mm-hmm. to tamp down on drug use and drug sales. Uh, one of those places makes sense to a lot of Americans as a place where police should be the inner city. Mm -hmm. Uh, The college campus is not one of those places. There would be a massive outcry from students, alumni, everyone. If uh, and their lawyers and their lawyers. Exactly. And you can see access to them. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But it's not as if one is more like necessarily uh, crime ridden or prone to this. Um, It's going on in both places. And I think that this just, is the story of the 20th century more generally and, and how evangelicals related to this was by playing into certain kinds of places and certain kinds of people as uh, what I call in the book icons of sinfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, and for them, the place that was criminal was the city, uh, was the inner city as it, it came to be called. And what is the inner city for most evangelicals, especially from the 60s on? It's a place where black people live. Um, It is a place where white people used to live and left. (laughs) Right. Right. And uh, so this um, is the place where a lot of evangelicals are interested in doing ministry and going Mm -hmm. and doing mission trips or opening like uh, youth ministries. Um, But it is also a place that's understood to be dangerous and uh, inherently, uh, godless really um i you know in the book i try to show this through people like um you know the the minister pentecostal minister david wilkerson who Mm. goes and does like drug rehab and gang ministry in new york um and really becomes very well known for this later after he writes this best-selling uh memoir called the cross and the switchblade um and i think you know, Wilkerson comes, he, he's a rural Pennsylvania pastor, like, and he has this story of like reading Life magazine and learning about all this danger and crime and murder that's taking place in the city. And that's real. It's not that he's making that up, um, but for him and for many other white evangelicals, it, uh, it creates in their minds, this, this idea that the city is this dangerous place that needs saving. Um, whereas the suburbs, 
Maybe not so much. Maybe, mm-hmm. um, the suburbs may have people that need saving, but that environment itself is not one that is inherently, uh, you know, flawed in the same way. Um, yeah. And I think that this then, this is exactly the kind of, of sentiment that forms how we think about policing, what kinds of places need to be policed, um, and what kinds of places need to be uh, ministered to um, for evangelicals. And I think what kinds of places need to be largely left alone in a libertarian sense by the police, you know, where you, you yeah. hear the sentiment of people like, why are you pulling me over? Don't you have real crimes to solve? Uh, yeah. Because what they have have done doesn't count in some way. Right. Yeah. The, just, you know, if the presence of the police in certain spaces causes alarm um, for some people, um, in, in predominantly white spaces, it may seem unusual. Yeah, precisely for that, you know, that why are you pulling me over? Um, whereas it is a, for outsiders looking in um, predominantly black neighborhoods, for example, the presence of the police for many white Americans is just a foregone conclusion. Like, oh, of course they would be there. Mm. For uh, African-American residents, it's not. Like um, they are asking often very critical questions about why do we deserve to have this kind of proactive stop and frisk, uh, you know, behavior, for example. Um, whereas that same assumption, if they were stopping and frisking people, uh, in a different neighborhood, there would be outcry. And it may be my perception, but it seems like these negative associations linger way longer than reality. And I'm even New York city as an example, to this day, uh, we'll get parents visiting New York with their their prospective students to the King's mm-hmm. College, and you know sometimes they'll pull me aside and go like, "Yeah, but is it really safe here?" Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, "Have you looked at the crime stats for wherever you came from and compared it to where we are right now?" Right. <laughs> like, I bet you New York City is twice as good as your, you know. Um, but they have that same perception I had from the eighties that New York city is like one of the most dangerous places on the face of the earth. And, um, that's really hard to scrub clean. Yeah. And it's, it's one that sadly, I I think, you know, throughout the book, I try to, to show this, and this is something that people often ask me, um, about with this research and with this as like a issue of, you know, for, for Christians today, like what about neighborhoods that are um, experiencing a rise in crime? Or what about, you know, that I've experienced uh, someone, uh, I've experienced, you know, someone violating my rights or, or whatever. Like what about those people who do become victims? And I think um, the key, it seems to me, is that we learn ways of doing justice to those violations when they occur um, and to the problems that communities do face when they face like rising crime or, or uh, drug addiction, but without buying into the um, inherent sinfulness of these kinds of places or these kinds of people as our frameworks for understanding what's actually going on. And, and that to me is, is a very, uh, that's very challenging work to do because then it actually involves like just listening to people like, right. and, and hearing like, what happened to you? What is this neighborhood experiencing? 
as opposed to just, yeah, projecting our, um, you know, whatever framework we have onto a place. Um, yeah. Also, what is this neighborhood like? I think, I think there's a, some way where if you live in the suburbs, so I live in Newark now or, or you know, right, right in, inside the downtown loop in Newark. Um, and I, you know, before I moved there, it took us years to actually figure out how neighborhoods worked, what they valued from the outside. You know, I, I used to look at things, I used to look at graffiti and think, oh, well, maybe that's not a nice neighborhood. Well, now I know yeah. that graffiti has nothing to do with whether it's a safe neighborhood or a safe street or not. Um, and I think for a lot of people from the outside looking in, they just don't know how those neighborhoods function. And so what looks really dangerous, you know, the people on the street who live there might see the exact same thing and think, oh, that's not dangerous. No, it's this thing over here you're not paying attention to that actually we're all worried about. Um, yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, I grew up in small-ish town, Alabama. And, uh, you know, we, in my neighborhood and throughout neighborhoods in my town, you know, there were <laughs> countless acts of, you know, Alabama kids uh, doing stuff that probably is disruptive, like shooting fireworks <laughs> off in our front yards or, you know, driving dirt bikes and four wheelers around or whatever. And, you know, I, I remember driving like a dirt bike through people's yards at one point and that that's definitely not something we should have been doing, but it was intelligible and it made sense in the context of our neighborhood of where I was living. And uh, should I have been doing it? Probably not, but it was not something that anyone batted an eye at because it uh, made sense as part of like, this is just how, um, you know, people in this neighborhood live and what, what they expect. Yeah. And I think that that like attention to the textures of um, local life is important, but also when violations do occur, when people do experience profound, you know, violent crime, for example, um, that we see, uh, those actions as the actions of individuals who are responsible. Um, but that the way to address that problem is not by treating the community itself as a, uh, you know, as a theological problem, for example. Yeah. yeah. A co-conspiratorial theological problem. Yeah. 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 Um, so thinking about this particular issue of getting into, to areas or neighborhoods, we can think about policing, um, and one common problem, and it does, nothing is alleviated here. And in, in Newark, most of the police are not white and still you have lots of problems with police brutality and, um, all, all the, all the normal mistreatment and good treatment and proper treatment and proper policing go on there. Mm -hmm. Um, but what is the role, you know? of, you know, if we were to create a policing system from the ground up using some of what we would hope would be some biblical principles that would work here, mm. are there, are there some guiding like that you see having looked at this, just like, it would be obviously better if we probably did X, Y, or Z and creating maybe police and even like thinking about jailing and maybe even incarceration on the back end of it. Yeah. That or is other tactics, <laughs> other tactics yeah. besides jailing and incarceration. Yeah. That's a, a great question. Uh, it's one that as a historian, I'm somewhat reluctant to answer just because I'm uh, 
I'm not a policy expert uh, or, but I will try to offer some, some um, insights from what I've seen, at least in terms of studying the history of this stuff. And it seems to me that the, One issue is that when we think about crime, especially violent crime, when acts of crime do occur, uh, when people are hurt by other people, it seems to me that the way forward, um, and and something that has happened in the past, uh, but the way forward for addressing that is thinking about restoration. Um, but restoration in a, in multiple senses, what does a victim need to begin the process of restoration? What does a, uh, community need when a, um, violation has occurred to be restored? Uh, and what does the offender themselves, um, what does restoration look like for them? And those are all very open-ended questions that do not have single answers. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it is that open-ended nature that we have to become comfortable with because it requires buy-in from a community. It requires buy-in from law enforcement uh, for thinking about when violations occur, like how do we address them and what fundamentally is the issue here? And we have to move away from just the um, the way we do it now, which is just locking people up, mm-hmm. um, locking people up provides a sense of security for some, but it doesn't address the restorative dimensions on any of those other levels. Um, and ultimately I think we, you know, just on a practical level, people who are locked up most often, you know, most of the time are going to get out. And just simply on a practical, pragmatic level, we just aren't even asking the question of like, what does it mean to restore them to society? Uh, Mm -hmm. Much less like actually having victims um, in the picture as well. And so it seems to me that this kind of approach um, is something that, you know, you will hear referred to as restorative justice. uh, And it's advocated for by people like Howard Zare. is somebody that I write about in the book a little bit. And then Chuck Colson becomes an advocate for this. In my final chapter of the book, I write about how Colson and other evangelicals who got interested in restorative justice in the 1980s were constantly frustrated in their uh, efforts to implement it or to argue for it as having a place in our current system because it, wasn't sexy. (laughs) Like it wasn't something politicians could easily translate into uh, votes. And uh, it wasn't something that policy wise was easy just to implement in a very, Mm -hmm. um, you know, because it required so much specialized knowledge of particular situations. But I think that that is ultimately where we have to go um, to seeing violations when they occur um, in very, you know, on the terms of what uh, victims and the community and the offender themselves uh, is dealing with and what their needs and stories are. Um, On a very practical level, though, like I think 
the way that we begin to start doing that is, uh, or begin to, on some level, just get on the right trajectory is uh, by thinking, rethinking our system of criminal defense. And most people who go to prison today don't actually get like a trial, like they plea bargain out of it and they don't receive adequate um, defense for, you know, uh, in, in, in the court of law. And I think that this is uh, really a problem in a society where we claim to have a, a sense of um, equal treatment of, of justice. And uh, I, I think simply one step forward on a very practical level would be just to increase the amount of funding that public defenders offices get so that they can uh, represent people who can't afford it, who can't afford the lawyers um, right. that the, the the college kids might be able to afford and who can actually tell their story um, uh, in a, in a court of law. Yeah. It seems to me that I, I was a former pastor, and I think the general sentiment of the white evangelical churches I was part of was – well, even the Brazilian evangelical church I was part of for 10 years. Um, it, it was this kind of like biblical justice means people getting what they deserve. Yeah. You know? and, uh, and that was essentially as far as the thought goes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, as I read just the Torah, the biblical demands for justice are taking extreme measures to make sure you're not mistreating something in matters of, of yeah. justice, whether they be poor or great. You know, it's, right. it's, you don't take pity on them just because they're poor. You don't treat them better just because they're noble. Um, whether they're a foreigner, whether they're a native born, it doesn't matter. Everybody gets this equal treatment. And I think that's what's the care that seems to be built into the process of biblical justice is what seems to really just be absent in our thinking and in our system. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I actually, you can tell me if I'm wrong and my understanding here, since you're the, the expert on uh, Hebrew Bible interpretation here, but um, I think evangelicals look at something like uh, the Lex Talionis, like eye for an eye, tooth for tooth stuff. And what they see there is a framework for retribution of like, mm-hmm. wow, this person did this. So that means we have to do something that's equally awful to set things right. Um, we have to make it right by punishing this person. And actually, it seems to me, and from you know talking to a lot of people about this, like uh, so much of what the um, Old Testament is gesturing towards is not a sense of uh, retribution in the way that evangelicals want to understand it of revenge, but of how can we have equitable responses to the violations that have occurred? So if you steal a six pack, you're not getting locked up for, for five years. That's not equitable. That's wrong. Um, not to mention, do you have the ability to, uh, regardless of how much money you have, um, represent yourself in a court setting. Yeah. I, actually, we have a three-part series of essays on uh, how to read the the law in scripture. And one of them is dedicated toward uh, this issue of what we call lex talionis, which eye for an eye is the catchphrase that we do. Yeah. But even in Exodus is telling the, the initial telling of the eye for an eye, I point out there that um, 
if you look at eye for an eye is not the actual rule that's meant to be kept. Even ancient rabbis were like, well, what do we do if we have a one-eyed guy right. who pokes out the eye of a two-eyed guy? Like this actually is, or what if somebody rapes somebody? Do we rape them? You know, like this actually isn't a rule to be kept. It's a principle. And if you look at the actual concrete instances that immediately follow eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, it's if you have a slave and you strike them in the eye, then you must release that slave from your service. If you, yeah. if you have a slave and you strike them in the tooth, then you must release them. So eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth there does have a sense of retribution, but it's actually immediately uh, set in the circumstance of people with power mistreating people that are vulnerable with reference to them. Yeah. Uh, which is really a dramatically different way of situating the same kind of ret- ret- retributive idea than the laws in the ancient Near East more generally. So I think we have a lot of work to do to get evangelicals of, uh, amongst all, you know, I'm saying evangelicals of all people because we're the ones that are supposed to know the Bible and, and the scriptures teaching the best, but I find that we are completely anemic uh, when it comes to the legal reasoning of scripture. Right. It, it also seems to me too, and I'm not a biblical scholar, but there's also the, um, I'd say like another uh, flawed understanding of, you know, when, when people read, when Christians read like the Sermon on the Mount and they turn Jesus's, uh, you know, you have heard it said, I say to right. you as like an excuse to be, um, to, to offer like an anti-Jewish reading of, of the Bible. And the, uh, the, I think our recovery of the gifts of um, the Hebrew Bible on this is so helpful because Jesus's uh, words there are not dismissing that tradition um, as barbaric or not just, he's not dismissing it as, you know, something that's antiquated. He's actually giving a fuller sense of what this might mean for uh, his followers. And I think that, I often am in situations where people who don't like evangelicals or are tired of evangelicals uh, chalk up their evangelical fascination with things like the death penalty um, to their, uh, you know, that they're they're too focused on the Old Testament, and I'm and I actually mm. don't think that we need to buy that. Yeah. We need to say no. It's actually a wrong reading of this. Um, yeah, and that same teaching of you have heard it said, but I say to you, he also says, uh, don't think that I've come to abolish the Torah. Right. I've come to fulfill every bit of it. Right. And right. I, yeah. And I have to tell students, even on the issues of capital crimes in the old Testament, because I, I went and looked it up and depending on how you count things today in the United States, you can be executed for more crimes than you can in the old Testament. Mm. Um, mm. by significantly more, I was actually shocked to find out all the things. Now, whether we do it or not is a different story. And whether they did it in the Old Testament or not is a different story as well. I mean, we don't have any examples of parents executing their children or people being executed for sexual crimes as well. Yeah. Um, it's it's a standard, it's principles that seem to be laid out there um, that have to be dealt with carefully. Um, one last question. This is, we're going long, but uh, you, you've got a lot of good stuff going on here, so I want to delve in. But just one last question. This the the restorative model i mean there are there are i have heard of states that did this so missouri uh, a while back in the 90s they invested heavily in juvenile uh programs so that instead of putting someone on a fast track to basically imprisonment by the time they hit 18 yeah they jumped in with counselors uh family systems counselors early on with any kind of juvenile crime and they saw a great success mm-hmm. in it but then again it wasn't sexy 
And so it was easier to say lock them up. And I think they went back to, to older ways eventually. Um, it, is there a role for in the criminal system like families forgiving or families, you know, like, oh, sorry, families, the victims, everybody involved, the, 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 you know, if you have somebody who, who robbed something, my wife was robbed at gunpoint in St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Um, the two girls who did it, um, their mothers were impacted by that. Their, their families were impacted by that. Their, yeah. uh, their lives were impacted. We were impacted by it. Um, and I think there, we, me and my wife felt this sense of helplessness because we thought, oh my goodness, these girls made these horrible decisions and now they're going to sit in prison for a long time. And then what? Right. Like yeah. you said, they're, they're going to get out. And then what happens? Right. What kind of people are they going to be at the end of that process? So I wonder if there is any room in restorative justice for having kind of like everybody involved, staying involved longer in the whole thing, rather than coming to this one nexus called the courtroom and then everybody going their separate ways. Yeah. You know, there's, um, I would just encourage your listeners to, to, you know, read, there's a fantastic little book. Uh, it, it is little, it's called the little book of restorative justice by Howard hmm. Zare, where he, um, digs into a lot of this stuff. And it's a very just helpful, uh, big picture overview of both restorative justice, but also some of the misconceptions there. And, um, you know, one of the things I believe I, it's been a while since I've read the book, but, uh, one of the things I believe Zare says in the book is that restorative justice doesn't, um, it's not the same as forgiveness. It's not the same as just like, no biggie, like, don't worry about it. Or, or I forgive you, like, you know, just, and that's a misconception that both I think critics of, of restorative justice, but also um, perhaps some advocates might have that this is Mm. something that just results in everybody feeling great and giving hugs Mm. and leaving. And I think that there are, especially in instances of, profound uh disturbing crimes where this is something you know restoration there will look very different than restoration um in a you know in a a matter of like theft of a few bucks or whatever Hmm. um but i think it's the key the key is that there's no prescribed or expected outcome um, that doesn't have the victims, the community and the offenders themselves involved in the process. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't like, I mean, yeah, I, I think that today we have a system where not only are people locked up, for long amounts of time and conditions that make it likely for them to reoffend, victims often just feel like they're totally left out of the process as well. Mm-hmm. And precisely not just feeling like, Oh my gosh, you know, like the situation you mentioned, like, I can't believe these people are going to go to prison for this long. Uh, but where they may not actually feel restored themselves, where they may not actually feel a sense of dignity or just very basically get their money back <laughs> you know, or, or right. whatever. Right. Um, and I think that those are the kinds of, you know, questions and orientation that we have to have um, moving forward. So, 
Well, the book we've been referencing is God's Law and Order, The Politics of Punishment in Evangelical America. Dr. Aaron Griffith, thank you so much for your wisdom and your guidance on this dicey topic. Thanks so much, Drew. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.